Ask Canada Immigration Lawyer Evelyn Aka. Good day. My name is Evelyn Aka, and this is the Ask Canada Immigration Lawyer Evelyn Aka podcast. I'm the founder and managing lawyer of Aka Business Immigration Law, and on this podcast, we are covering all aspects of immigration for professionals and individuals who are looking to move to Canada and the United States for work, for family, or for personal reasons. If you are looking to make that move, you can download our free guide at acalaw.com. I'm so excited today as I have my good friend and colleague, Saja Rauf, joining us all the way from California. Welcome, Saja. Thank you, Evelyn. It's wonderful to be here. Saja is a fabulous and very well-recognized immigration lawyer. She focuses on exceptional ability visas for those people, or extraordinary ability visas for those people wanting to move to the United States. And it is a real niche area and very challenging. And so I wanted to have her on the podcast to talk about her background, her practice, why she moved into immigration law, and also uh, where she sees the future of immigration law heading into the future while we're together. So thanks so much again. You know, I'm so grateful to have you. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell us about how you moved to the U.S. because your story is so exciting and really interesting. Thank you, Evelyn. I was born in Baghdad, Iraq, and I left when I was one year old and have never been back. My parents moved to the UK for their graduate degrees, and they were supposed to be uh, gone for only four years and four decades later, and we still have not returned to Iraq. The political turbulence that our homeland has gone through at every uh, time we try to go back to Iraq, it just has not, um, the stars have not aligned. So yeah. in 85, when my parents graduated, uh, my family moved to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Iraq Iran wars, uh, the Iraq Iran war was going on, so we moved to Saudi Arabia instead, and I lived there until I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. And in the early '90s, after the '91 Gulf War, and it became clear that we were not returning to Iraq, we decided to immigrate to the U.S. I moved here when I was uh, 17, when I started college. And for the majority of my time in the U.S., I've lived in Michigan, and I moved to California. Uh, about uh, seven, eight years ago. That's so great. I mean, all, all of us are immigrants. I always tell people we're all immigrants, but mm-hmm. unless you're from the original people in your First Nations or Native American, um, we are all immigrants. And whether you come a year ago or you came 150 years ago, we're all immigrants. And so I love that because it connects us all when we recognize that we're all landing in different places at different times. How did you and your family move to the U.S.? Because we know it's not easy. We decided uh, in the early 90s to um, look into immigrating to the U.S. under a category called alien of extraordinary ability. My dad qualified for it, and I interviewed him recently on that process. I was about uh, 12 or 13 years old. And as the eldest of four, I was delegated with helping him put our application together. (laughs) And this was before uh, the internet was around, but not widely used. So uh, sending our attorney in the US, our documents for what's called uh, EB1, Mm -hmm. 
was a tedious process that we, uh, my dad and I, uh, and my mom went through together uh, for about a year. And once we were approved, we got interviewed at the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And then we moved here. And uh, when I interviewed him, I asked him about our um, how he got letters of recommendation from his mentors in the UK. And uh, now when I work on Alien of Extraordinary Ability applications for my clients, mm-hmm. getting a recommendation letter, like the hard part is just drafting the text, but then it's uh, emailed and, and it takes from there, it's the easy part. With easy. my dad, it would take about a month to get a recommendation letter uh, because we had a uh, postal service. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember those days. That's incredible. Yeah. So the whole family was able to move as green card holders because of your dad's education and really being an extraordinary person. I think yes. that's incredible. I always find it funny when Americans immigration lawyers refer to aliens. Like I'm just like, it just <laughs> aliens. Like where did that come from? It just seems so bizarre to me. We call mm-hmm. them, you know, foreigners or temporary foreigners or yeah. or you know, permanent residents or something, but we don't call them aliens in Canada. So I always, I always makes me feel like they don't belong. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. wonder if that's even a deliberate use of language that you always are not one of them. How mm-hmm. was it for you growing up, Saja, as a woman um, going to university in the States and being Arab American too? What was that experience like for you? Feeling like um, an outsider, a um, uh, an alien, if you will, a foreigner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> having always since we left Iraq, uh, feeling that the language that we speak, the um, faith that we subscribe to, the extent mm-hmm. that we exercise our faith, and uh, our customs, our attitudes, yeah. always felt. Um, out of place in yeah. where we lived, we can either um, uh, focus on the uh, occasional expressions of hostility, uh, the go back to where you came from. Yeah, kind of language, I heard or, those. Yeah, or we can um, choose to focus on and celebrate and embrace the people who extend support and. Uh, solidarity. I think it says a lot about the fact that we both got into this area of law. You know, I think I remember being called awful things when I was young. I moved to Canada when I was five from West Africa, Ghana. And let me tell you, Vancouver in the 70s, there were no black people. And if there were, we knew them already because they were, we would embrace them. We had this thing, you'd see a black person, you'd be like, hey, hi, how are you? Here's my phone number. You know, where do you find your food? Where do you get your hair done? Where do you do? And it was so challenging. And I think being five, you get to adapt. You, you hope you can integrate a little bit more, but being 17, that's mm-hmm. a huge difference, you know, in terms of growing up in the culture and then now you already have your set culture to come with that to a whole new country so I always feel like that about adults even who immigrate I think it's so much harder for them to really Mm -hmm. adapt I feel because they already have formed who they are right and then you come yeah and then you come and you have to adjust again so I think you've obviously done incredibly well with that um so you finished 
you, you finished um, university and then what made you go to law school, Satya? I was pre-med. Yeah. So Ooh. College as uh, both because both my parents are doctors mm-hmm. because that seems to be the default thinking for children of immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> and I went as far as taking uh, biochemistry and anatomy in college mm-hmm. uh, and then decided to um, I considered law, thought the I took a few classes in undergrad and uh, legal philosophy, enjoyed the subject matter more and decided to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I graduated, um, uh, I went to law school uh, since I was involved in my family's immigration. Uh, that seemed like a natural um, area of law to focus on. So I went mm-hmm. to, that was one of my reasons for going to law school. And uh, my family, like many Iraqis who grew up in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. uh, secular. Yeah. So I, when we moved here, I did not wear a hijab, a headscarf. Yeah. And I chose to wear it in college in that same sense of when you said, you, know, you see another black person in Vancouver. <laughs> and it, so I, I chose to wear hijab to um, connect with the Muslim yeah. community. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have the opposite attitude now. I do not want to wear clothing that advance conversation. I know. <laughs> now than I was in my 20s. Uh, <laughs> but I uh, wanted to make friendships and connections. So I wore hijab in uh, the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And in uh, 2001, 9-11 happened my third week of law school. Mm-hmm. I was uh, in torts class uh, when it happened. Mm-hmm. We had a bomb threat at my law school uh, in Detroit, and we evacuated. Yeah. The next day, uh, class was canceled, and on the morning of September 13th, it was time to go back to class. And during those two days, we were glued to the TV, not only watching what was unfolding with the terrorist attacks, but also watching the backlash against the Muslim community. Yes. And hearing about attacks on Muslims, on mosques, and our um, conversations during those two days were my parents strongly asking me to take off my hijab. Mm-hmm. They were scared for you. Uh, absolutely. Um, I had, um, my dad said, God would not want you to put yourself in harm's way. Uh, there's, you're going to get hurt. Please consider taking it off. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, the morning of September 13th, when it was time to go back to uh, class, I um, took it off for a few minutes. And then I stopped myself and said, this is not what I immigrated to the U.S. for. Mm-hmm. I immigrated here not to abandon my freedoms and my liberties. And if being an American means anything, if what I'm studying in law school means anything, Hmm. it must mean the insistence on exercising my First Amendment rights and um, expressing my faith, not even during precarious times, but especially during precarious times. Wow. That is so brave, Saja. I mean, I remember that time frame. It was crazy. The racism, the Islamophobia, the xenophobia that was happening, 
was everywhere, you know, and the policies against immigration and who could come in and visit. It was a really challenging time. How did you get through that? Like how it seems like if anything else, it reinforced your confidence and your faith in being able to be who you were and show up however you wanted to. Part of it was the recklessness of being in your early 20s. (laughs) (laughs) You reckless? (laughs) No. One of the things I heard most from my dad during (laughs) those do you have no sense of danger? Um, And uh, so there was definitely an incentive to remove hijab. I went to law school with somebody who is brilliant. She was at the top of the class, um, extremely hardworking and smart, and she wore hijab, and she didn't get any interviews um, her for first uh, summer internships. Um, I luckily landed at the ACLU, mm-hmm. so I. Um, but uh, that was I've definitely seen a lot of hijab wearing women, understandably remove it for fewer purposes, of course for personal safety, all kinds of, of very understandable reasons. For me, I remember having a conversation uh, with a colleague in law school who said, would you want to work for an Islamophobic employer? Uh, Use your hijab as a filter to uh, any law firm that doesn't extend you a job offer because of your hijab. Would you want to work from them anyway? So uh, part of it was choosing. I could take it off and be afraid or I could keep it on and uh, insist on my uh freedom and my uh whatever consequences happen i will embrace it yeah and another huge part of it was uh the communities that uh were the um focus of uh discrimination and racism for us so um i was in detroit i went to Wayne state university law school and i was surrounded by african-american students who are uh, whose parents were in the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. who had a strong uh, belief in uh, and a lot of practice in standing up for their freedoms and for their liberties. Uh, during the uh, Trump administration, uh, I had just moved to the Bay Area and I attended a presentation by Karen Kurumatsu, the mm-hmm. daughter of Fred Kurumatsu. Uh, her father had um, resisted going to Japanese internment camps yeah. in World War II. And uh, her support and her um, and the Japanese American community's support for the Muslim community uh, mm-hmm. during uh, those years was very valuable. I had I picked up a poster of Fred Kurumatsu at that event, oh. and I had it in my office uh, for the longest time okay. to irony and encourage me. Yeah, no, I think what's really great is when communities come together. I mean, we've been dealing with with COVID. I mean, we're getting into so many things that I could talk to you about anything, but during COVID, how the Asian American and the Asian Canadian communities were targeted and the importance of other communities speaking for them, because it's hard to always be the one, as you know, who's defending or speaking or, you know, stepping into that for yourself. It is more powerful even when others step into that and you know, speak up on behalf of their friends, their other community members that they are, you know, allied with. And so I'm really happy that you were able to feel that support from the African-American community and the Asian community, because that's how I think it should be. 
you know, and it should be the same from the, the from the dominant community as well. You know, we don't always want to be the one talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. It gets tiresome, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I know it's the first time you've really gotten into explaining where you were and how things were at that time. I, I just remember as an immigration lawyer, I was young, um, just starting my career, I think in 2000 in Toronto, we had to like leave the Ernst & Young building and I had to walk 35 floors with my high heels. And I was like, never again. And I have runners in my office, no matter where I am, just in case um, of a fire alarm or whatever. But also I remember the rules changed so quickly around who could come to the States. And I had to deal with, you know, people from Muslim communities and Africans that were Muslims who were like, I can't even go visit my family anymore. How it changed their experience at the border. And they were Canadians as well as maybe dual with their home countries or even being born in a country that was considered Muslim or Arab all of a sudden changed their abilities to travel. And it was quite a scary time to be doing the kind of work we do because you yes. felt the pain of your clients and you couldn't make any real changes for them. Um, so let me just pivot now to ask you some more questions about generally about your practice. Tell me about Rauf Immigration, when you started it, why you started your own business and who your ideal clients are, Sajjan. Thank you for asking. Uh, I um, have done only immigration since my first summer in law school. I did uh, both my internships uh, during law school were focused on uh, post 9-11 civil liberties for uh, immigrants. And then I worked for a a law firm in Ann Arbor uh, my first six years out of law school and then set up my own practice in 2012. And um, I practice uh, primarily business immigration with a special focus on the category that my dad qualified Mm -hmm. for, uh, the alien of extraordinary ability. And uh, this gives me, um, it's a category that is near and dear to my heart. So I really enjoy uh, going through the criteria for my clients and uh, finding uh, grounds for eligibility and then uh, walking them through the process, and then uh, finally, when uh, they become U.S. citizens, uh, I get to relive. Um, I, I get to relive my family's own um, yeah excitement and, and belief for finally um, belonging to the country that they lived in uh, yeah. for the first they left Iraq uh, two decades before we became U.S. citizens. Wow, that's incredible. It's so great to feel like you're making a difference every day. I'd love to learn more about that because we don't have a category like that in Canada. Like I hear sometimes like models, extraordinary. (laughs) You know, I'm always like, is it really the case? (laughs) I mean, really, um, obviously, if we have any extraordinary files, we're sending them to you, Satya, but I'm like, what makes somebody considered extraordinary in this day and age? One way to uh, demonstrate that is if somebody has uh, an amazing lifetime award, like the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Or if you have <laughs> Nobel Prize in medicine or physics, yeah. you're going to get a green card. <laughs> yeah. Uh, alternatively, it could be a combination of factors. So, for example, 
uh, we demonstrate your original contributions to say um, COVID research. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we show your publications, we demonstrate the uh, evidentiary value of the um, of those contributions, what kind of journals were they published in, how heavily are your uh, articles cited, what impact have they had in the field, have you received awards from, for your work, have you served on uh, a panel to judge others' work. Um, a combination of those factors is how we demonstrate that you are um, uh, at the top of your field and that you continue to contribute your talents to uh, the U.S. I love that immigration is so broad that it allows us to really niche down and you found your calling. And so whenever anybody needs somebody with extraordinary ability visa or somebody who wants to see if they even qualify, you know, I think what I love about my work is we're always learning about our clients, but you're like digging deep. Like, do you find that you read all the reports and, you know, like, do you, so it gives you that sense of understanding the STEM world even more so than just the immigration law world, right? Is that what, Absolutely. that curiosity, is that what keeps you engaged after all these years? That's the sort of uh, uh, inescapable part of having been pre-med for, <laughs> for a long yeah. time and coming from a family that is- uh, Doctors. <laughs> Doctors. So, uh, and so I, I was pre-med as I mentioned for uh, many years. So I have an understanding of that sort of uh, language, and I'm, um, and I appreciate deeply, of course, the impact that uh, people like that bring to our society. Wow, it's incredible. So, for instance, if somebody gets in and you get them in the EB one, they're coming as permanent resident. Is that right? First, and then yeah. generally, how long does it take to become a naturalized citizen? Five years. Five years. Okay. That's exciting. Do you go sometimes to their ceremonies? Yes. If um, I leave it up to them. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I go if I can. Yeah, and of course. Oh, I love it. it. Yeah. It's a very meaningful. It uh, is. Yeah. It makes us feel very proud whenever I go to one and and in Canada, they make you, if you're a citizen, stand up and swear and do all that again with uh -huh. people that are becoming citizens that day. And it's so heartwarming and it's so uh -huh. powerful because I'm saying it again, you know, and um, it's something that we don't take for granted. I think you and I, because we know how privileged we are and how lucky we are, but also what we bring mm -hmm. to our communities and to our countries, you know, doing the work we do, we're making big differences for sure. Um, is there anything else I want to ask you about? Is there anything you see when it comes to EB1? Any trends? Are they are, are you seeing more scrutiny? I mean, everything changed with COVID. Did you notice during COVID challenges to your specific category? The delays uh, that have resulted from COVID have been outrageous. Uh, immigration is... Um, really behind it's taking many many months to get anything processed mm -hmm. uh, so that has um really put people's lives uh it's just prolonged what was already yeah. a long waiting game mm -hmm. and uh during covid um there was um, a travel ban on countries that had high uh, rates of covid 
And in order to uh, travel to the US from those countries, you had to show uh, some kind of, you had to qualify for some kind of exception. So um, I argued for clients' ability to overcome those um, travel bans mm-hmm. during COVID. Oh my goodness. How long normally, let's say now, you get a brand new client, they've got all their stuff, you submit it. How long do you think it's taking? Does it depend on the country of origin? It depends on a number of things. First of all, where in the U.S. does the application uh, need to be filed? The place of uh, residence depend determines which um, citizenship and immigration services service center the application needs to be filed with. Yeah, and they have different processing times, and that um, those times are published on immigration's website. Mm-hmm. Another factor is uh, the individual's country of birth and the uh, visa bulletin that the Department of State puts out every month determines when um, countries in each category are qualified to apply for green cards. Okay, so you know, like general set, a year, three years? Yeah. It varies like that? Really? At least for sure. Wow. Can I ask you lastly about H-1B and let's say Indian nationals? And I feel like I'm seeing more and more EB-1 applications. I don't do them, but my friends who do them in the States, probably in you as well, probably finding more people are looking to that as an option because of the caps, whether you're from India or China or Pakistan, and it's taking so long, or you're not getting invited under the lottery, they're pivoting and looking at EB-1. Have you been seeing that too? Yes. That's definitely a popular uh, topic of conversation among U.S. immigration lawyers. If your client's um, candidate for H-1 is not selected, then what are alternative routes? And uh, the EB-1 is one of many. Um, Especially in the area you're in, you're in San Francisco area, dealing with Silicon Valley and STEM. And, you know, I can see they're all extraordinary. So it's like, how do you, how do you distinguish yourself? It's like being in law school. Everybody's smart. How do you distinguish yourself? You know, you have to rise up even higher. So um, how can people reach you, Saja, if they want to learn more about your immigration services, if they think they're extraordinary, or they know somebody in their family that they feel would benefit from your expertise? Thank you for asking, Evelyn. Uh, my website is my initials, S-A-R dot law and i'm on linkedin uh saja Rauf. um i guess i need to spell that out s-a-j-a my last name is r-a-o-o-f yeah and it shows up here on the podcast too the video that we'll share and we'll make sure in our liner notes for the podcast saja everything will be there i want to thank you so much for your sincere, sincere sharing and for being on our podcast. It means so much to me um, since we know each other through Provisors and you're my fabulous group leader. It's so exciting for me to have you um, share your knowledge and wisdom with me and our listeners. And I want to just thank you so much. Very grateful. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you so much for having me and for making it uh, comfortable for me to open up about things that I don't usually talk about. So I'm very, very appreciative for your, um, uh, your practice and your, you're my role model for uh, how engaged and uh, energetic and um, (laughs) I I love that I got to meet you in person last month. Um, 
Can't wait until I see you again. It made me so happy. Thank you so much. You're my first Provisors podcast interview. So you're right <laughs> at the top. Always. Okay. Take care. That's it for the show today. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Please share this episode and any others you feel that would help someone looking to make that move to Canada or the United States for work or for family. It would be so great if you could also write a review in Apple Podcasts to let others know about our show. Please give us a five-star rating. If you have any questions, please reach us at akalaw.com. That's A-C-K-A-H-L-A-W.com. Or call our main office in Calgary at 403-452-9515. Have a great day. Thank you. We look forward to helping you cross borders seamlessly.